Our text for this afternoon is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And as you are locating 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, let me just rehearse for you a moment the context of this verse. The relationship that Paul had with the church at Thessalonica was a very good relationship. It was unlike some of the tension-filled relationships that he had with the church at Corinth or other places. And in these opening chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is recalling what a wonderful experience he had there, preaching the word. And as those in Thessalonica heard the gospel and they came to Christ and formed this church, Paul could be filled with nothing but good and warm memories of his time there. And we come, and just to set a little bit of the backdrop, we'll go back to verse 9. We come to verse 9 of chapter 2, and we read this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And may God bless his holy, his true, and his inerrant word in our midst this afternoon. This passage from Paul will offer us a frame for what I have been assigned to talk to you about. The topic that I have been assigned is, how did we get here? Now, I traveled 2,216 miles by plane, and then 30-some-odd miles by car, trying to get away from my new boss, R.C. Sproul, and lo and behold, he followed me here, larger than life, for everyone to see. But the question is not how did we get here, but how did we get here talking about inerrancy. You see, we were already here back in 1978. We've made numerous numerous references to this. We settled this with the Chicago Statement. And if you haven't seen the banners flying outside, you'll see the Chicago Statement in all of its glory. And yet, here we are talking about the subject of inerrancy. How did we get here? I wanted to start with a text of Scripture as we look back 
to the 20th century in particular. Because again, this text of scripture will serve as a frame for us for how, how we should understand what we are going to see and what happened that caused us to get here. As Paul remembers his time with the Thessalonians, he points out two things to us. One, he points out the way that he literally poured out his life into these people. That as a father with his children, Paul gave of himself. There was no end to his labor and his toil. But more than simply being a relational pastor or a relational missionary, Paul also gave them words. Do you remember the words of Christ in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer? In the introduction to that prayer, Christ tells the Father that he has accomplished the mission. That you have sent me into this world to reveal you, and that is what I have done. And Christ specifically says this in those opening verses of John chapter 17, I gave them words. I gave them words. And this is what Paul does. Christ, at the end of John chapter 17, says that I have made the Father known and I will continue to make him known and yet he leaves. And that raises the question, how does he do it? How does he continue to make the Father known? And the answer is through the office. The office of apostle in the case of that first generation of the church and the office of the pastor teacher. And so Paul, following his master, did exactly what Christ did, who both gave of himself and gave them words. Paul tells us a little bit about this. In verse 13, he says, I preached the word that was the apostolic commission. And when you heard these words, you received them. The sense of the original is as if you are welcoming a special guest into your home. A person of honor will grace your home with their presence. And you welcome them into your home, the special guest. And this is the Thessalonians. If we turn back to Acts chapter 17 and in the opening verses of Acts chapter 17, there we see that Paul was in the synagogue, again, giving them words, words that pointed to Christ, that he was the Messiah to come and he, in fact, had come. And Luke, this most excellent historian, records for us that many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women became a member of the church at Thessalonica. They welcomed this word. Paul tells us that this word is not the word of men. And in the first century context, there was no shortage of the words of men. There was a whole school of philosophers that were called the Stoics. 
which literally meant porch. The stoa was the porch. And this was the the porch of the public buildings. And these were philosophers who would philosophize for a living. And they would come into town and they would plant themselves in a public place. And they would give to the crowd their philosophical insights. And the hopes that some noble family that would hear them might hire them as a tutor for their children. Or they would uh, pay them for their services as a philosopher. The Stoics would blow into town and express their new idea. After Thessalonica, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Athens. And Luke, it wasn't beneath him as an historian to editorialize. And so he could editorialize as he is giving us an historical account of Paul at Athens. And he says, now these Athenians were given over to the fascination with new ideas. They loved to have someone stand up in the marketplace and give the words of men. Elsewhere, Paul tells us we are not like the many peddlers of the word of God. And here he says, we are not like the many who come with a word of man. But you accepted it for what it really is, the word of God. And as the word of God, it is the only thing sufficient It is the only agent that can accomplish the next clause. It is the word of God that is at work in you believers. In the classical education, the model of the classical education of the Greco-Roman days, the end of education was not scientia, the accumulation of knowledge The end of that accumulation of knowledge was formatio, formation. We can up the ante a little bit in our biblical sense of things and speak of transformation. This is what the Word does. I love the expression, it's at work. Picture a piece of wood. And the carpenter takes that piece of wood into his shop and he works on it. And he shapes it. And he carves it. And he sands it. And he smooths out all of those rough edges and he conforms it to the image of the piece of furniture that he has in his mind. And if you were that piece of wood... All of those instruments doing their work would hurt. Luther said that the Word of God assaults us as it works on us. But he also quickly said it comforts us. And the Word of man cannot do that. 
The reason we are here and the reason we are talking about inerrancy is because this is the Word of God. And because this is the Word of God, it is at work in us believers. And if it is not at work in us believers, then we might as well just have a health seminar or a get-rich scheme seminar or a how-to-have-harmonious-relationship seminar. The words that we say, if these are not the words of God, will fall away. They will fade, and they will be of no value. But if we are talking about the word in the first century, it is effective to accomplish its task. And if we are talking about it, In the 21st century, it is effective to accomplish its task. And in the next century, and in the next century after that, if God tarries. No, this is not the word of men. Yesterday I arrived, I queued up at the Hertz rental car self-service kiosk, and a word of man came across the screen, your wait time is two minutes. Fifteen minutes later, it said your wait time is one minute. The word of man will not transform us. But the word of God will. As I think about these words from the Apostle. And I see the movements in the contemporary American church among those who would self-identify as evangelical. Movements away from an inerrant text. I tremble for the church of the next generation. Admittedly, this passage does not have the word inerrancy. It does not have the expression utter truthfulness. It does not have the words from the Westminster Confession of Faith on Scripture, the infallible rule. But as we think about the word of God, what is the logical conclusion but inerrancy? This was, in fact, an argument that was worked out by one of those great stalwarts of the turn of the 19th and early 20th century. And you have this nice new edition of his book. Warfield had a very simple argument. Scripture is divine. And as a divine revelation, as a verbally plenary inspiration, the view of verbal plenary inspiration, the natural conclusion to draw is that it is inerrant. If every word in the whole of the Bible is inspired by God, then it will bear the character of God upon its every word. And therefore, it is true. And so we have the 
Princetonian doctrine of inerrancy. It is, in fact, this Princetonian doctrine of inerrancy that has been challenged in our own moment in this new generation since the Chicago Statement. And as I look at that challenge and as you look back over the 20th century, you can see this challenge arising from three areas. One is the exegetical area. In fact, we could go back just a little bit before Warfield's day. What sort of launched Warfield into this conversation was the work of a fellow Presbyterian scholar in the Old Testament, Charles Augustus Briggs. And Briggs, an American, went to Germany to study with the best of German scholarship, and he came back to Union Seminary in New York. And he argued that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, that it is a much later text assembled of oral traditions by a later scribe. And in his inaugural address as his chair at Union University, or Union Seminary rather, Charles Augustus Briggs says that inerrancy is a boogeyman, a modern invention to scare children. I'm not exactly sure how inerrancy scares children. I've heard some scary stories. None of them have ever used the word inerrancy. I don't know what he was thinking when he thought it would have a malicious effect upon children. But that is what Briggs said. And so he was brought up on trial heresy trial in his denomination and he was defrocked and Union Seminary turned around and found a separate funding force from the denomination brought him back onto the faculty and he was ordained as an Anglican an Episcopalian and so we begin the modern challenge to the doctrine of inerrancy It's not just an American story. It also happened in the Netherlands in 1911. Abram Kuyper appointed Herman Bovink as the rector of theology at the Free University of Amsterdam. And in his 1911 address entitled Christianity and Modernism, Bovink extolled the virtues of modern achievements. He was amazed at the accomplishments of modernity, and he did not want to simply dismiss modernism. He, he reveled in what was the accomplishments, the great accomplishments of the 20th century, and he makes this comment in his address that he only wonders at what future generations will accomplish and achieve. But there's a price tag to be paid with this modern moment, and that is that we think we have outgrown God. And we raise the terrible question of the 20th century. Does an ancient book really have anything to say to us moderns? In the very next year, Bovink gave an address to the Convention of Modernist Theologians. That was actually the title. The Convention 
of modernist theologians. And in this 1912 address, Bavinck reminisces of his time at Leiden, which was liberal at that point. And he says, my professors gave me stones for bread. But Bavinck never wavered in his commitment to Scripture. His colleagues who caved to the pressures and sought that brass ring of academic respectability, had reduced the great truths of Christianity to symbols, he says, clangs and symbols, but not for Bavink. They remain realities, Bavink said. Were I to give them up, I would lose myself. And then I said, that cannot be true. These realities are worth more. They are more real as facts than the difficulties in nature and scripture. I am therefore bound by that which is for me personally in the depths of my soul, the life of my life, the very salvation of my soul. For Bavink, these are not symbols of anything. The words of this book are true in the 20th century. He was a Daniel in a lion's den. Or since I heard Alistair Begg earlier, I will say he was a lion in a den of Daniels. The story was also repeated in the UK, Spurgeon in the downgrade controversy, recognized that at the base of it was the challenge to the authority of scripture based on the new realities of the modern world. And the church is so easily swayed, so easily tempted. There were exegetical issues. These scholars who had studied in Germany, this newfound historicism, this idea that ancient texts are not to be trusted because they are written within a mythological context and they use mythological expressions communicate what they are trying to say. And so we must strip through all of this. Like taking the husk off of an ear of corn. So that we can get to the little kernel of truth embedded in these documents of faith. Not only did we see these exegetical challenges... We also saw philosophical challenges. This might be an oversimplification, and I try to avoid gross oversimplifications, but there is some merit to this construct that the pre-modern philosophers were focused on the notion of being. The early Greeks, in their discussion of the four elements, were trying to get at what is the essence of life. 
the arguments between Plato and Aristotle and the other Greek philosophers over the one and the many were all geared at this idea of what fundamentally is being. As we move into the modern world and some of the things that Dr. MacArthur was talking about in his address and the onset of rationalism and the enlightenment, we shift from talking about being to talking about knowledge. And with going back to Descartes and the father of modernist philosophy, the prevailing question is not what is reality, but how do I know? And so the modernist quest for knowledge. And then in the 20th century, as modernism was literally running out of gas and collapsing in on itself, philosophers began to give up looking for meaning and the basis of knowledge. They likened it to searching for the needle in the haystack. And we've been looking for the needle for three, four centuries. We haven't found it. And so we shift from talking about knowledge to simply talking about language. And so we have the 20th century philosophers, the analytic philosophers, and the logical positivists on the continent and in the UK, on our very own homegrown American philosophy of pragmatism, of the words, of language. As we transition into the end of modernity and what sociologists or philosophers will speak of as post-modernity, one of the tenets of post-modernity is that there is no view from nowhere, which is to say all of us have a context. We are all situated, and our situatedness means that our language is entirely referential. It only has meaning within our tribe. And if we think that our language has some touchstone to reality, some absolute basis to it, some full truthfulness to it that is outside of our tribe, we are fooling ourselves. Our money is of no more real value than if we were to pull out our monopoly money and walk into the bookstore and try to pay for our books with our monopoly money. The German philosophers called it Sprachspiel, language games. And we reduced everything to a context. Even some evangelical theologians went so far as to embrace that tenet of postmodernism that the biblical text itself is situated in a context. No more an arbiter over how we should view God than our own context of the 21st century. And we very easily move from the philosophical to the cultural. The cultural challenge to inerrancy. 
you saw it a few weeks ago. I don't mean to name names, but I believe that ideas have consequences, and I believe that bad ideas have bad consequences. And we saw it no more blatantly than in the words of Rob Bell when he says, let's stop referring to letters that are 2,000 years old. The utter irrelevance of Scripture. When there are two people standing in front of me, flesh and blood, who love each other. What a terrible thing it is to stand in reverence and fear and awe before Oprah. The hubris it takes to say, I've read this book. No, thank you. I've read this book. I'm not impressed. Doesn't resonate with the way I think things are. read the first couple chapters of Genesis and what do we find? Male and female, he created them. What an odd moment it is culturally that you can choose your own gender. And if you want to change your gender, that's your prerogative too. You can determine what bathroom you go to in your elementary school. How is that not an, ins- an assault on the first chapter of Genesis? God saw Adam and knew that he was incomplete. So God made Eve. Male and female shall become one flesh. My name is Stephen. I like to go by Steve. Can I ask you a favor? Please refrain from saying, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Please. Say anything else. Stop saying that, please. I like my name. We read in the opening chapter of Genesis that we are made in the image of God. And yet we slaughter that image. When we legalized abortion as a culture. We're not even out of the first two chapters of Genesis. And culturally, We have an entire front that stands in opposition to the Word of God. We will have none of it. 
Well, that's our challenge. The exegetical, the philosophical, the cultural. What do we do? I'm so grateful for church history. I wanted to write a book entitled Everything I Needed to Know I Learned from Church History. But that would be an untrue title because, of course, learn it from the Bible. But I say it slightly tongue-in-cheek, everything we needed to know we can learn in church history. It was a fascinating debate that Augustine entered in with Jerome. Based on the exchange between Peter and Paul in Galatians, Jerome thought, well, this can't be right. Peter could not have gotten it wrong. And so Jerome was in favor of a view that would say that Galatians is an erroneous text. You see, this is bad theology. Bad theology sees the problem, and then it goes outside of the bounds of Scripture to try to solve that problem, or in this case, transgresses Scripture itself to try to solve that problem, and it creates a more worse problem. See? Well, Augustine writes to him, and in the letter, this is what he says, Admit even a single, well-meant falsehood into such an exalted authority. You know, elsewhere he's going to speak of Scripture as having unadulterated truth. And yet, there are many who will claim that inerrancy was an invention of the Princetonians or the Scholastics and the members of the Westminster Assembly. What does unadulterated truth mean? What does utter truthfulness mean? Admit even a single well-meant falsehood into such an exalted authority, and there will not be left a single section of those books which, if appearing to anyone to present difficulties from the point of view of practice or to believe from the point of view of doctrine, will escape from being classified as the deliberate tact of an author who was lying. Cast aspersions on one text of Scripture because it's too hard for you to accept or you can't fit it in to your doctrine. And all bets are off. Augustine then says this, An effort must be made to bring to a knowledge of the sacred scriptures a man who will have such a reverent and truthful opinion of the holy books that he would refuse to find delight and a well-meant falsehood anywhere in them and would rather pass over what he does not understand than prefer his own intelligence to their truth. For indeed, when he expresses such a preference... He demands credence for himself and attempts to destroy our confidence in the authority of Holy Scriptures. When we stand in judgment of the Word of God, 
we are putting the credence of ourself over the credence of the Word of God. Go ahead and up the ante to the group. The group has decided that this is unacceptable. We are putting the credence of the group up against the credence of the Word of God. What Augustine was saying in the early 5th century is true of the 21st century. We put our own credence above the credence and the authority of the text. What we find here is a common thread, a failure to submit. Failure to submit. I find myself often referring to the refreshing waters of church history because we see in them these figures from church history. A testimony to this accepting of the Word of God. Let me just point out a few of you as sort of leaving breadcrumbs for you to track down. Peter von Maastricht or Petrus von Maastricht looked at Scripture and the so-called attributes of Scripture, as we say, and he argued that the bedrock attribute of Scripture is the authority of Scripture. Because they are authoritative, they are necessary. And because they are authoritative, they are clear. And because they are authoritative, they are sufficient. And I like to add the attribute of Scripture of its beauty. And because it is authoritative, it is beautiful. Von Maastricht used the expression of Aquinas to define theology, to apply to Scripture. And so he tells us that Scripture is divine. It is from God. It is about God. The very subject of it is God himself. His will, his plan of redemption, the unfolding of the divine decrees in space and time. The subject of scripture is God. And ultimately, scripture leads us to God. Everywhere, scripture's divine essence is apparent. And if Scripture is divine, it is true. Calvin has been referred to many times already today. May I just pull one quote out of the Institutes for you? In expressing the unique function of the Holy Spirit within the members of the Godhead, in the giving of revelation... Remember in Genesis, it is the breath of God that is hovering over the waters, and out of that comes creation. And so it is the breath of God, the Spirit of God, that carries along these human authors in the giving of God's Word. And then Calvin says, the Spirit cannot be at variance with himself. If the Spirit is the author of Scripture, Spirit cannot lie. Scripture is true. Zwingli's successor 
at Zurich, Bullinger said, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the word is most absolutely perfect revelation. Absolutely perfect. He says, it is a wellspring of truth. Peter Martyr Vermigli, the Italian reformer who fled Italy for Zurich and then spent some time at Oxford and then returned to Zurich. For him, this whole question of Scripture and its authority and its truthfulness comes down to two words in the Latin, Dominus Dixit. The Lord says. Or as we translate in our English Bibles, thanks to Tyndale who gave us this English translation, and it has stuck in English Bibles ever since, thus says the Lord. Need we say anything further? We can see even in the canon debate in church history, the submission to the Word of God. Recipimus, we have received the Word of God. We do not establish these books as canonical. We receive them and acknowledge the divine stamp that is on them. Turn through the pages of church history and you will see in every century and in every age the church stood for the utter, full truthfulness and reliability and authority of the Word of God. And it is from that truthful Word that the church preached. And it is that preached Word that transforms lives, that is at work in us believers. And we roll into the 20th century and we think we know so much better. And to combat this, in 1978 this group meets in Chicago and writes up the Chicago Statement and writes up the 17 Articles of Affirmation and Denial. And the original group meets and edits it and signs off on it. And hundreds more sign off on it. And the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy gives itself a 10-year life and they put on seminars in churches and they publish books. All to see that the doctrine of inerrancy of Scripture would be rooted in evangelical churches. And so there's a clear demarcation between the evangelicals and the liberals. And don't miss the efficacy of that work of the Chicago Statement. The Chicago Statement sustained a group as they fought to win back their denomination and their seminaries, our Southern Baptist friends, drawing upon the support of the Chicago Statement and those who signed it. And we saw something that is very rare in church history. We saw the good guys steal it back.
And here we are in the 21st century. We find ourselves at a moment in the church where we have the accumulation of these exegetical, philosophical, and cultural challenges to the Word of God. And it boils down to this. Will we submit to the text? You know, it's not simply the inerrancy of Scripture that we're ultimately talking about here, is it? I suspect most people in your congregations will see a quote like the quote of Rob Bell and see it for what it is and, and not be tempted to move in that direction. Who knows, though, where this next generation will find itself in our culture? I speak in terms of North American culture. We have enjoyed a certain place of cultural privilege. It looks like things are changing. The doctrines of the Word of God and the teachings of the Word of God that we hold so dear may very well find us facing persecution in our church in the next generation. You equip them. You prepare them for the battles that will very likely come. But I suspect it's a harder challenge to take this doctrine of inerrancy, seal it in our hearts and our minds, and let it flow into our bloodstream and into our lives. The doctrine we're talking about is the sufficiency of Scripture, isn't it? We can sign an inerrancy statement. But do we really take this word seriously in all areas of our life? Do we look to it? Do we read it? Do we love it? This new song by the Gettys, this overwhelming emphasis by the psalmists of longing for the word of God and then do we live it out do we take Paul seriously when he says this is the word of God and it is at work in you believers may I end on an encouraging note though It is the Word of God. And it is at work. I don't know how you could step into a pulpit week in, week out with a view that would be less. You'd be like those professors at Leiden giving Bavink stones 
when he longed for bread. Well, Bavink was appearing at the Convention of Modernist Theologians. Jay Gresson Machen was writing for McCall's Magazine. I mentioned this recently, McCall's Magazine, and a man that I knew came up and gave me a copy of Field and Stream Magazine. He thought I needed a more manly magazine if I was talking about McCall's. Please don't give me a latest copy of Field and Stream. I already have it. But in the 1930s, of all places, Machen wrote in McCall's magazine, and he wrote about his experience of going to the Empire State Building, and he was amazed at being lifted 1,200 feet up in the air into this massive building. What an achievement. And he says, oh, in the modern world, we have lifted the body. But what do we do for the soul? Machen says, give me the cathedrals of the medieval world. That will lift my soul. No, better still. I long for the day when humble hearts, do you hear that? Humble hearts. That's what all of this hubris of modernity. needs to be challenged by. Our immunity is a humble heart. So Machen says, I long for the day when humble hearts will cry out for the living bread and the living water that satisfies our true hunger and our true thirst. And for the majority of you here as ministers of the Word of God, it is you who will give it to them. You who, like Paul, will give them words. True and beautiful and holy and pure and perfect and life-changing words. Let's pray. Father God, we confess our own pride. We confess that we too are easily swayed by the culture in which we live. That at times we are tempted to bury down within us our convictions that put us out of step with the times in which we live. Forgive us of that. Forgive us of bad doctrine. And forgive us of inconsistent doctrine. May we be encouraged to proclaim your truth, to give not the words of men, but your words. And may these words be at work in us, your children. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.